Thank you for tuning in to this show. This episode features Bernie Taylor. Now, you might be in Bulgaria. You might be in Croatia. You might be in South Africa. You might be in Peru. Guess what? If those are you, you people out there, I think you're great. But I also think you're great if you're not from one of those places. Because I have listeners now spanning all six continents, maybe seven. I don't know. I don't think analytics track Antarctica because there's like, I don't know, 500 people in Antarctica at at any given time. And maybe that's wrong. That might be a lie. That might not be true. But it doesn't matter. This episode features Bernie Taylor. Bernie's research explores mythological connections and, and biological knowledge among prehistoric, indigenous, and ancient people. He has written two books spanning these topics. One is called Biological Time, and another is called Before Orion. In this interview, we discuss the research he did and conclusions he came to while writing that book, Before Orion, and that came out last year. Now, we talk a lot about a specific indigenous peoples, okay? And when I say a specific, I don't mean a specific tribe or a specific race. What I mean is the people that made prehistoric drawings, if you will, prehistoric carvings inside of the cave of El Castillo. And Bernie studies this cave and the inscriptions within it to learn about human history, to learn about things like who were the first astronomers? How did human beings at such prehistoric times study the stars? And what did they learn by studying the stars? And not only who were they, but why did they study? And what did they leave behind that we took from, even today? And those are the sorts of topics that we talk about in this episode. And I hope that you enjoy our conversation. It's one of my favorites that I've ever conducted, because Bernie is just such an interesting human being, and also he has a cool name, because Bernie Sanders really took that name, which a couple years ago was a stupid name. No one liked Bernie, right? Bernie Sanders took that name, he ran with that shit, and now we have Bernie Taylor, who has an awesome name. So for any of you haters out there who don't like the name Bernie, I don't like you. So take that to the bank and enjoy this episode. This is the State of the Universe with your host, Brendan Drackler. Three, two, one. Bernie Taylor, how are you doing? Brendan, thanks for having me on the show. It's great here. Good. That's good to hear. You're out in Portland, Oregon, and that's a. I think I need to move out west when I'm done in graduate school. That's besides the point. It doesn't matter. It's just my fantasies. The point is, Bernie. I moved out west about 25 years ago from the New York metro area. I yeah. would never go back. I. Yeah, that's that's sort of where I live now. I live in New York, but not not New York City. But that's besides the point. Bernie, why don't you tell us what it is that you do? Exactly. Good question. Um, so how did I, really how did I the the project before us is before Ryan find the face of the hero, which explores the the mythological connections and biological knowledge of people going back to thirty four thousand years ago, and I tie it into the astronomy of the time, which also connects to the astronomy of today. Okay. So what do I do? Well, if I was if someone was to point a finger and say you know, that guy, he, they say, that guy is a Native American shaman because a Native American shaman did all these things. A Native American shaman 
manage the calendars and, and the calendars told them when they would be um, hunting for elk or harvesting the salmon. The Native American shaman um, looked to the night skies and charted the stars to tell them where they were in time and space. Um, and, but I don't see myself as a shaman, but this kind of, this is the role of what people have done. This is the, I'm the astronomer before the modern astronomer. I'm the biologist before the, the modern biologist. Um, and I describe myself as a naturalist because a naturalist does all these things. Uh, a naturalist studies the, the animals and the plants and they, they, they look at not just the, you know, the sun, but also the moon and the tides and everything else in that world. So to describe myself, I would say as a naturalist, but other people would probably say, you know, this guy's kind of like a shaman, although I don't have that sort of spiritual belief of, of a shaman. I see that there's an order to the cosmos, um, but I don't see it as coming from a divine place. Yeah, and so I think that the actual, the type of work that you that you do and, and the, the idea behind be, uh, Before Orion, or is, that, is that what it's, did I say that right? Before Orion? Before Orion, yes. Okay. I, yes. I wanted to make sure. And that's a, it's a metaphor. Yes, exactly. And we'll get into that metaphor. But what you do, I think, if I had to describe it in terms of, 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 of words, would be sort of ast astronomical archaeology, if I, if I had to, to, to put it into words. And maybe you don't agree with that, but I'll, I'll say this. Did you ever see the movie Prometheus? Yes, I did. And so there's actually a term. It's called archaeoastronomy. Okay. And the, uh, Anthony Aveni from, I believe, Colgate um, – and um, Edwin Krupp from the Griffith Observatory are the historic leaders in that field have written many good books. Um, there, there are others as well. Okay, but, so, so, so in the movie Prometheus, at the very beginning, I, I want to touch on something. At the very beginning, it starts off, and, and I am not a movie guy, okay? People tend to think that if you're in astrophysics, which I am, if you're an astrophysicist, then you should like like Star Trek. You should like Star Wars. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about any of those movies. I don't. I don't know who Han Solo is. I don't care about Darth Vader. I, I don't give a shit about any of that. But this movie Prometheus, I watched the beginning of it. I, I don't care about the movie itself. But the beginning, it starts off with this woman, and she's in a cave, and she finds like cave art, and that mm -hmm. cave art leads her on some sci-fi journey throughout the galaxy or, or whatever. That doesn't matter. But the point is. The act of finding cave art and using that cave art to extrapolate something magnificent about the human race is something that has always, always fascinated me. So when you contacted me, I was like, yes, Bernie Taylor, get the hell on my podcast. I want to see it. Because if I, had, if I had not gone into astrophysics, to be perfectly honest, I would have gone into to archaeology, to studying ancient civilization, and to analyzing the types of things that they left behind. Because that, to me, is supremely fascinating. Yeah, I had the same feeling when I watched that segment on Prometheus. And I was like, oh, my God, wow. And um, there was an obvious connection. And I, I've always said that – well, actually, not always said in the last few years. If someone ever defrosts a caveman, I want to talk to him first. Because I know what he was looking at 34,000 years ago. And I can decode hit the symbols that he made. I can't decode symbols that made other, other planets, um, but I can definitely decode how he did it. And I'd want to bring him into a, you know, I want to bring him to a planetarium, and I would want, I'd want to recreate the night sky as he saw it, he saw it before he was frozen, and that would be our common language. That yeah. would be the connection from the the distant past to the present, which is the archaeoastronomy 
as you drew from my work. Yes, and and that is very true. The the night sky very much is a language, and it's been used as a language as a right. We have astrology. Astrology amazes me because it is so ingrained in our society, even though it inherently is bullshit. But but, and I want to stress this: your placement. This is my belief, okay, and I think this is most most humans' belief or most scientists' belief. Your placement on the Earth as it orbits around the sun, whether it be January, February, whether you be in, in the constellation Gemini or Taurus or whatever, that has no inherent impact on your mood. Your life decisions, the things that you decide to do, the way that you handle life, that has an impact on your decision on your mood. But your placement around the sun has no inherent meaning. But astrology is is important. It's important because it was used for thousands of years. Astrology was very useful in terms of farming. Astrology was was very useful. And that's why we have terms like the strawberry moon or the harvest moon. Those things stick around because ancient peoples very much relied on the placement of astronomical objects in the night sky to tell them when to do things. Right? And so I think that there is an aspect of astrology that isn't complete bullshit using it to extrapolate uh, whether or not there's going to be an impending war or whether or not the economy is going to collapse i'd say probably don't do that right if you go to a stockbroker and he's telling you to invest in, in in tesla as a company because we're we're approaching the constellation gemini maybe you shouldn't invest in that person but there is some useful things that you can extrapolate out of looking and studying the night sky and that's what you've done Yes, very much so. And there, there was a. I wrote a previous book, Biological Time, which explored how plants and animals are synchronized or timed. Um, it's chronobiology or biological clocks. And I studied how the salmon um, time their migrations to both the sun and the moon. And salmon are not early later from one year. They actually are earlier or later on our calendar from one year to the next. But they're actually on a, a solar lunar calendar, which is one is out of sync with the other. They appear to be out of late. Out of sync, and I did that work um, with a whole bunch of animals, um, and I, I had a I had a pith moment, um, and actually a few of them. One of them was I connected with an actual Native American shaman whose line went back for he could go generations about eight or nine. He could name them off. This person's in the Columbia Basin, and I'm we sorry, were sharing what, it. Where's the Columbia Basin? In the Columbia Basin, in uh, what's it? The border, the border of Oregon and Washington. Okay. And um, we were talking about the stars, and he and I sh- and we were going to go to. He was going to show me the, the night sky for a specific event. And I said, "Well, I pulled out my you know my wheel, my star chart, and I said, well, let's figure it out to the right time." He and he had never seen a star chart before, but he did know all the basic star, all the fundamental stars in the night sky as they appeared each day. So he was interested in the helical, the helical rising. So his calendar was not just the sun and the moon, but it's as the, the, those stars first appeared on the horizon. He had no concept in his mind that there was the stars were below the horizon that you could time them in advance. He just knew that if you went, if if this this ceremony was timed by this star, and you and you you prepare for that ceremony by a star that preceded it that came up in the night sky. And it was one of those Star Trek moments, you know, when you meet a, a, pre, a, a pre-civilization, you're not supposed to tell them the secrets of, you know, the universe. Otherwise, they're, 
you disrupt their cycle. Well, I it was like, it's like the cardinal rule or something. There's another word in track for it. Your listeners know it. Um, or the imperative or well, I did it with this and I gave my star chart. And what in that moment in that time, I destroyed his religion. And I didn't realize it. Because his religion was based on the stars preceding them as they they're introduced to the night sky. And that was the divine speaking to him. And so it ties back into your the, astro the astrology, that astrology in the past is not the astrology that you see in the newspapers or online today. The astrology in the past was the actual looking at stars and night sky to tell you when events would happen in their own world. Exactly. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I think that it, it could be useful. I think that if you are living 2,000 years ago and, you know, you're living where I live now in Rochester, New York or something, you need to know when you should start storing food for the winter or you yes. need to know when you should start, you know, getting settled down because there's going to be 40 inches of snow piling up on top of you. You, you need to know these things. And there's, there's ways to know them. I guess if if you just sort of respond to the temperatures outside, that's one way you could do it, right? You could say, "Oh, it's it's getting colder out. It's getting progressively colder out," but that's not necessarily a good way to do it. A good way to do it is to look up, because every year when that first snowfall happens, there's going to be a constellation, probably Orion, actually, uh, really really bright, coming up over the horizon, incredibly incredibly um, panoramic. It takes up a large part of the sky and you're going to see that every year and it would be really hard for you as an ancient person to not associate that with the way in which you need to begin living right so you need to start hunting less you need to start st spending more time at in home in your shelter because the elements are going to begin to to wear away at you and so yeah i I, th I think that that too many people look at astrology because of what it is in the newspaper, because they look at a horoscope, which is just some vague set of words that could honestly apply to anyone, right? You, you, you read a, a horoscope and it's, it's, it's complete and utter nonsense. But astrology is not just horoscopes. It's not. It is, it is um, and, I, and people are probably going to take this clip and accuse me of being an astrologer, but, the, <laughs> um, but, but there is actually things that you can do by studying the sky, things that you can learn by studying the placement of the stars. Well, your your location and tying in Orion to the snows is a very good example because the Ojibwe in the greater the Great Lakes region called Orion the Wintermaker, and in their myth they tell a story of animals that interrelate with Orion the Wintermaker, who brings the storms. And it's a what we do is we. What they Ojibwe did and what people did 34,000 years ago, as we can talk about in the cave art, is they looked to the night sky and they projected their psyche there. And they saw animals and people and the mixtures of animals and people, you know, the centaur and the merman and, and so many others, the avionoid, the man who transforms into a bird. And they believed that the earth and sky were one. And there was some point in time that we recognize that they were actual stars and not beings or um, in the night sky. And we walked off a spiritual cliff or, or maybe a scientific cliff. And we, all those souls that had gone to the night skies and became one with the stars, they all died that day in that moment. And so we, when we, 
astronomy, as we know today, killed off millions and millions of people or the souls of millions and millions of people that we can never bring back. But what we can do is we can go back in time to see how that Paleolithic mind is still our own and what we can learn about ourselves today from that mind. Because in many ways, other than that, you know, the, the people actually becoming stars in the afterlife, um, we haven't come very far. And that's what these stories tell. Are you ready to go? Are we ready to walk back? I was going to say, cave? this is a great segue because now we should talk about the actual caves that you studied. And, and I just want to clarify that the two main ones that I saw in your work are El Castillo Cave Correct. and Gorham's Cave. Okay. And then you can we'll talk, do, you can talk we'll about do El Castillo Cave. Yeah, that's, so actually it's the El, it's the El Castillo Cave. Um, it's kind of a it's mountain. It's a pyramidal mountain. looks just like the, the Giza pyramids. Okay. Okay. And it is where? Uh, it's in the northern part of Spain, in the Cantabria region. The nearest city that people would know is Bilbao. Um, so, we're, so they would be on the, the, let's say, the Atlantic Ocean. And across that water there, they would see, if they look north, they would see France. Okay. And of course, France is to their, their um, east as well. And so th this cave is really important because about six years ago, the oldest cave art in the world was dated there on this panel called the, um, the panel of hands. And there was a, there was a new technique to um, the, the, these, these caves are um, limestone and cal calcite um, penetrates through the, the limestone and that calcite can then be dated. And if that calcite is over any cave art, one could say that the, it's the, the cave art must be older than the calcite formation. Correct. Okay. And the calcite formation could be one day old or it can be 10,000 years old. Okay. But if you get a bunch of them on the panel that overlap the cave art and they're, they're within 1,000 years of each other, you could probably say, you know, it's probably about 1,000 years old than the calcite. That's generally how, how they've done it. So th this image, uh, one disc among many on this panel of hands was dated five years ago to about 40,000 years ago, at least 40,000 years ago. And it was big news. All the media covered it. Oldest cave art in the world, a dot. Okay. And it, it was on this curved, this jagged curved surface, and it didn't take a very good picture. So the, the media ran with another image it's, it's from this cave system on the so-called gallery of disks. And this gallery of disks is 10 meters across, or about 30 feet for the non-scientist. And there's about 90 or so red disks that are about the size of the palm of your hand. And they, they, they stream horizontally across and, and approximately two rows. And, it, and it jumps out at you. And if you want to tell a red disc story or a red dot story, that's it. So most of the, most of the world who looked at this, they said, well, that, this gallery of discs one um, must be where the oldest disc in the world is, of this oldest cave art. Okay. And, can, uh, can we give it was people... a bait and switch? It was a bait and switch. <laughs> okay. I see. Can we give people a sense of what forty thousand years ago means? Because I think a lot of people would hear forty thousand years ago, and and because they don't know the history of civilization, that might not seem like a lot for them. So, well, well, actually, let, let's let's let me return to that one in ten minutes. Okay. Because great. how how archaeology, anthropology, and history thought of forty thousand years ago before the writing of my book is completely different than it is today because we have to rethink a lot of things. So I'll get back to that. And that's, that's really important because um, these were not knuckle dragging cavemen, you know, right. by, by far. 
And so, so we have the, we have this panel and I was, I was looking at the panel at these, these high resolution images from a Spanish photographer, Pedro Suara. And I am, I'm looking at this and so, you know, the most common animal depicted in Paleolithic cave art is a horse and it's typically a pregnant mare. And you've got this huge, almost white panel with just these red discs running across the center. You know, maybe it's the horse in there. Cause, you know, why not? People find out find these Im images embedded all the time. So I start looking for a horse and I don't see a horse till almost three years later. But what I do see right away is an elephant. Okay. okay. And so I looked at the elephant. It's pretty obvious an elephant. And, and, uh, and I, re I realized fairly why people hadn't seen this elephant. And it goes back to a, um, a scientific experiment by um, um, Nicholas Tinberg. And Tinberg won a Nobel Prize. This is a Nobel Prize season, so we can drop off on this one. Um, he won a Nobel Prize for his work on, his, on instinct of animals. And his book was called The Study of Instinct. And Tinberg had these uh, uh, three-spined sticklebacks of fish, prey fish, by his window in a tank. And every day a red delivery truck came by, the sticklebacks went into defensive posture. And so he hypothesized since the sticklebacks are brainstem dominated, they don't have the cerebral hemispheres, the gray matter that gives us cognitive thinking. It, it, it's something deep inside them that, that it's the same instinct we have. And so why we use red in sign is just McDonald's, Burger King, Dairy Queen, um, Coca-Cola, and all these things is that we're drawn to the red, the red lipstick, the red dress, the red car. And it's deep, it's you know, brainstem dominated instinct. So from that perspective, we're not any different than a three-spine stickleback for any other animal out like that out there. So, so I realized pretty quick that why people head to the elephant was because they're drawn by, they're, they're um, excited and drawn into the red disc. So it was an optical illusion. It was the first hiding the elephant in the room trick. Okay. okay. And this elephant is, is life-size, at least the head is life-size. And very quickly, I saw that there was actually two elephants made from the same ears, the ear and trunk. And then right away, within a few minutes later, I picked up there was actually a man speaking to the ear of a younger boy. Okay, and can I pause you for one second? Cause sure. I, I, I'm not sure if this was completely clear. These things that we're talking about right now, okay, now they are physically carved into the rock inside of this cave, right? Well, yeah, they're physically they're, – they're, they're, they're either physically carved – they're sh or shaded over with some sort of like charcoal and they also or use the red discs are used for example the eyes of the boy correct um, and um, and uh, and patterning of other animals but there's all the all the, the artist also uses natural material organic and mineral material that had fallen over the panel to either shave off or um create characters within it okay the reason the reason it's mixed I, medium. Yeah. The reason I bring this up is because I, I don't want people thinking that we're just laying on, on our backs in the grass, staring up the clouds and picking things out. There is actually a, a physical, yeah. a very physical manipulation that occurred inside of this cave, whether it be etching into the rock or, or using materials to paint over the rock. Uh, right. so, so it's not... And, and the natural surfaces. Yes. And, and natural features within the rock. That's important as well. And uh, so, so this elephant was a problem. So I'm looking at this elephant. And I, I looked, you know, quickly. It's very easy to go online to see what elephants look like around the world. And they were elephants in Europe at the time, but they were a straight tusk elephant with a big, kind of a rounded head. And this elephant had, clearly has a flat head. 
So I contacted a friend, an acquaintance of my distant past when I was about your age. I'm 53 now. I was living in China, and I encountered this gentleman named George Schaller. And anybody can Google George Schaller. He's considered the world's foremost wildlife biologist. And I, I connected with him on Facebook. I said, George, we met at the Ming tombs, you know, 35 years ago. And um, you don't remember me, but I remember you. And you were in National Geographic at that time is he was doing something on snow leopards and uh so i said you know can you just help me with this this question you know can can we identify this elephant and he said you know kind of busy now and he's going off to afghanistan or someplace to study snow leopards and so he gave me three names of um, people i should contact and i contacted them and they even responded back to me and said hey george i came back to george when he came back from wherever he was and he said okay i'll help you out but i'm not going to I'm not going to draw any pictures and I'm not going to write any articles because I'm he's interested in saving big cats around the world. That's his thing. And he's mid eighties and he's not interested in publishing articles or giving lectures and any of that sort of stuff. That's fair. And so George, he's a he's a field wildlife biologist. And he's he's the the mentor to everybody from the past you could possibly imagine, including Jane Goodall. Um, so he's like the man before the man. And so George, we went through this and we and we, we never could identify this this definitively say what kind of elephant it was it sure didn't look like an it didn't look like a, a european elephant at the time and it, it didn't look like a woolly mammoth or those sort of things um and so we kind of but as we're trying to figure that out we came across other animals and we came off a barbary ape which is now at gibraltar but it's indigenous to the atlas mountains of north africa and george was also um a, a, a primate guy and uh, so he pretty quickly picked up on that Barbary ape and it was distinctive characteristics of it that he was, um, he was actually positive. This is Barbary. Ape, okay. Can I pause you? Can I pause you for one second? I want yeah. to talk about the elephant real quick. Sure. Did you ever, I, I like to get into the mind of, of the type of people that I talk to. Did mm. you ever consider for a second that maybe this elephant is one of the elephants that you were looking at, that you were studying and the people painting just suck? Right, because if I had to paint an elephant, it would look nothing like the species that I was intending it to look like. Had that ever popped in your mind that that maybe these these you know people forty thousand years ago just weren't very good at painting? And well, actually, that's that's where we started with the elephant because we it wasn't. I mean, it looked like an African elephant. I mean, just like it, but we couldn't really say that because we didn't know we didn't have other representative animals to say whether they're exact or not. Right. So it's a good it's a good point because we didn't know that we didn't recognize it at that time. But then when we saw some of these other animals, such as the Barbary ape, it w- it was so exact to how the Barbary ape looks and how its arms and legs move and its facial expressions. And I, I in my book and on, on the images you see in the YouTube, I have a Barbary image of a Barbary ape that looks exactly like the one in the cave. I mean, it's, it's how its arms and legs are and its big butt. I mean, it's almost like they're twins. Okay. And, and so as we went through these animals, we we also – the most important one we hit was the, the giraffe. And the giraffe just sort of changed the whole picture because we weren't thinking Africa. We were just thinking these animals had migrated into Europe. Into Europe. We, we just – we weren't – Africa wasn't even on the, on the, the board. Um, and Barbary apes, there's some in Gibraltar now, so who knows how long they've been there. Uh, but when we hit the, the giraffe – and we have two giraffes. There's a mother giraffe whose whose neck is has that molted pattern, um, and from the red discs. And there's a juvenile kind of wraps around her head and underneath. And the the artist clearly shows the ears and the horns 
of both the mother and the juvenile giraffe. So now we have very um, distinctive African animal and the characteristics or, or the taxonomy is so exact that this artist had to have seen an exact picture of the animal or they had seen the giraffe. And it, and that, and, and then what we real the whole thing sort of popped out at that time that we really we realized that all the African animals were on one end of this 10 meter panel, all the European animals were on the other end. And in the middle, we have a dolphin and some other um, sea marine animals. And we realized that this was a journey from now the Iberian, what we call the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, across the Strait of Gibraltar to Africa and Western North Africa, where the Barbary ape is indigenous to. Um, and so going back to that, so what was this like 10, 40,000 years ago? Well, 40,000 years ago, Western North Africa, Morocco, which you now see is desert or the greater Sahara region, wasn't, wasn't desert. It was a savanna, just like, um, you know, the Kruger in South, in, in Africa, South, Southern Africa. And that they were, they were giraffes and they're elephants and there are crocodiles and a hippopotamus. They were there at that time. They were there also there about 12,000 years ago. And we can say they were there 12,000 years ago because we have cave art throughout the Sahara of all these big um, African animals. Can you imagine, you know, if, if, you, you, if you, you walk, you could walk weeks across the Sahara and not see a soul. And then you come across a wall with a hippopotamus and you'd say, how the heck did that get here? Well, because 12,000 years ago, the Sahara was. Uh, had huge lakes that they're still drawing the that have now crept into the seeped into the the, the earth and now they're, they're um, welling um, water out of it. So 40,000 years ago, the the, the Greater Sahara region um, kind of wanes in and out of these wet these dry and um, wet cycles, um, and because and part of that has to do with um, the procession that the earth wobbles. And then with, as the earth wobbles, the, um, the climates change. And so what, you know, there, there will be climate change, right. guaranteed. Yeah, and, so, in five, and in 5,000 years ago, buy some, buy some land in the Sahara because you might get some beach, you might get some lakefront property. Okay. You might get the whole lake. Yes, exactly. Uh, so so let's, uh, let, let's pause real quick mm-hmm. and we're going we're gonna to talk about one thing quick, the procession of the equinoxes, as it's called. Mm-hmm. Okay, for the for the people who li- are listening who aren't familiar with this, the Earth. You can imagine the Earth is a is a spinning top, okay, and and it spins very slowly as a top. Uh, and when I say a top, I mean those old toys that that I my generation might have been the last generation to ever play with them, okay. But when you spin them, you. Uh, but I imagine my demographic is mostly people my age or older. When you spin them, they they wobble very slightly, and the Earth does something very similar over the course of about 25,000 years. The magnetic North Pole literally wobbles on an axis, if you will. And, it, and that happens over the course of 25,000 years. And as, as Bernie is saying, that can affect a lot of the things here on Earth, like the climate. So we, we have well, that cleared up. Oh, did you want to add something? Well, well meteorologists say that. It's a, I can't get a noble for that one. Okay. There's, yes. a, there's a climatologist, the whole... It's a historical. Um, it's a historical phenomenon. Right. But if you want to give me credit for that one, I'll take it. Okay, you can have it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I don't know if it's going to be Nobel Prize worthy. In fact, after listening to to uh, 
to god why am i blanking on on um so this is what my brain does it, it takes important information and it puts it in a compartment that that thinks i'll never like utilize it my brain is like an office space and for some reason the, the operator of my brain takes all of the important documents and shoves them in a place in which I can never, ever access them. Brian Keating is the name I'm looking for. After listening to my podcast with Brian Keating, or after interviewing Brian Keating, I don't know if I want to win the Nobel Prize anymore until it's reformed. <laughs> but that's besides the point. Uh, I'll give you credit for that, nevertheless. So, And then I want to to make sure that everyone's on the same page here. Okay, so we're in El Castillo Cave, right? And mm-hmm. you're analyzing... Have you ever gone there? No, I haven't gone to this one, no. And and if if I had gone to it, I would have seen it for a few reasons. One is that there's a wire mesh over this panel. So if you go there today, you will not see what you can see in these high-resolution images. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I went to Stonehenge, I think last year I was at Stonehenge, and and it really is unfortunate. I I understand for conservation purposes why it's important, right? Because Stonehenge, you can't get anywhere near the site. You can walk maybe like 50 feet, maybe 100 feet away from the stones but you can't see or get the feeling for the types of details that these ancient civilizations put into the work because of that it's unfortunate but nevertheless i understand it but but anyway so we're in el castillo cave and and you have identified something interesting going on in the ancient people's cave drawings you've identified that they have put a bunch of of african animals on one side they've put some european animals on another side and in the middle, you have animals that are mainly sea-bearing animals. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And I'm not thinking – at this point, I'm not thinking astronomy at all. Right. You know, and I'm not, not, like, not even near that. And there, there were some animals such as there, – um, there's two men at different ends of the sky. And one man has is holding a club like the Greek Orion. Mm-hmm. And the other man has a – a mask on his face, and he's in his right hand. He's holding an egg, and I wasn't familiar with the cosmic egg myth either at the time. I think, why the heck is this guy holding an egg? Um, and so there's there's a lot of mythology I did I didn't know. I was studying chronobiology. I was interested in biological clocks, the timing of animals, and how um, ancient prehistoric people knew when to go catch salmon or to harvest elk, that sort of stuff. I'm I'm not a I'm not. A, I wasn't a mythologist. I, but I, I had some sense of astronomy because I was using the, the astronomy in the calendars for Native Americans and how they were timing okay, for the uh, sun and the moon. So I had, I had some concepts of that. All right, and so, I, I also want to set the stage a little bit more. Is mm-hmm. this wall that they're doing all this writing on? Is this wall vertical? Or it's is horizontal. It, it's horizontal. So it's about um, it's t- ten meters across and about four meters high. Okay, and it, so it's almost as if you could think of it as like the wall of a planetarium. Oh, without any question, yeah. Okay, great. You without can question, yeah. You can you can continue on the journey. Yeah. So we're we're finding all these animals and a, a few others. There's a lion, and, the, and there's actually two, a lioness licking a lion. And when I was asking, and there's a, a Iberian lynx, and it's the um, the kitten is nuzzling against the mother's chin. And I was asking George all these, you know life history strategy, taxonomic, tax, tax, taxonomical questions. And George would always respond back, well, of course, that's what it is. But he would say, well, this is, there's, it's such a beautiful moment between the, the kitten and the mother. Or, um, it's you know, a touching scene between the lioness. She wakes up in the morning and she licks the lion. And so George wasn't, George was the shaman. He's the naturalist. He's the, he was looking at this, that the, 
These are empathetic scenes. And they just weren't empathetic scenes between the two animal beings, but the artist had captured and understood the empathy between, between the animals. Just as people did, just as we're sort of getting back to today, that um, we don't go on safari to shoot animals anymore. We go on safari to see the animals, to take pictures of them, to see them as, as close as we can in their natural environment. So we're coming back to that, you know, we being one with the animals type of thing. And of course, a lot of that came from the work of Jane Goodall and how we're we're not that far distant from the gyps. Yes. So George's so George George's response is is that these are empathetic scenes, and I'm like, this is just totally blowing away because. That question of what were people like 40,000 years ago? Well, prior to me doing this work, they were knuckle dragon cavemen and a few made some good pictures. But now we have these, these scenes of um, these beautiful scenes of animals connecting with each other and the mother take, protecting the young. And um, it just it rewrote everything. And we had to start thinking about um, who we've been. And then we have the story of the man who tra- he travels from Iberian Peninsula across the Strait of Gibraltar to Africa, and then he comes back again. Um, and so we, this, so this is the first time we've actually have a, a non-DNA connection, an archaeological connection between Europe and Africa. And so, which is kind of startling too, because we we just hadn't had this before. Um, so then, as I'm, we're finding I'm finding more animals, and I start seeing characters. I'm going to tell you. I see, you know, lion, you know, maybe that's Leo, maybe it's not, but I'd have to have a whole bunch of con- other constellations. And I, the, the, there's the dolphin. Uh, if that's Leo, then the dolphin is kind of in this, in the place of, of, um, of Pisces. We have these two, we have these two men and one, one, each end of the panel. I figured one was the shaman who has the mask on or the bird mask. And the other one could be Orion. And, you know, around, around the panel, there's all these, these characters that, um, kind of in the, in the place of the constellations. There's, there's an eagle, which could be a Gia. But then then I found the horse. And when I found the horse, they all fell into place. And so that at one end of the panel, we have the, the, the man of the mask becomes Hercules. The horse becomes Pegasus. A Gia is the eagle. The, um, we, we have a, um, um, the, then the fish, be, the dolphin becomes Pisces. Uh, very quickly after I realized, I saw the, Rose of Pisces, I saw the seal, which becomes Cetus. And I guess that if, you know, in the night that a um, Cetus seal sounds like a monster, right? And so they made a better story than say it was a seal. And then if we go, then we have Orion, at the hunter. Then we've got the, the uh, Barbary, eight, the two eyes of the Barbary eight become the eyes of, of Gemini, Gemini. Gemini. We have the, um, the lion. Uh, becomes Leo. Next in line, we have we had, I had already found bears, which become Ursa Major. And then we, as we continue down, I f- later found um, actually I previously had it, but I didn't put it in the images. But I have a crocodile, which becomes um, Draco. We have the the now extinct great auk, which is Cygnus. Um, and there's a bunch of other constellations, okay, uh, animals which became so, so constellations. Now- we have this cave art. We have this cave mm-hmm. art, and, and we've set this stage for everyone. We have it. It's almost as if it's painted on the wall of a planetarium, and correct. And it seems to tell a, an evolution. Sort of. Yes, it seems to tell an evolutionary biology story at first, but then you start putting t- together the pieces, and you realize, wait a minute, this might be an accurate depiction of the night sky. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it's all the same constellations that the Greeks had in the same order, the same animals in the same order. 
Yes. And what's important, what's important for the people listening is, is not that, that we had ancient people mapping the constellations. What's important more so is that we had ancient people mapping the constellations 40,000 years ago. Correct. As the Greeks late refound them as well, which is interesting. It's a, it's the same story. So here, so here's the difference between modern astronomy and 34,000 years ago. And I believe, I believe this is hundreds of thousands of years before that. I believe that that image is 34,000 years ago, but I believe astronomy dates back hundreds of thousands of years before. Okay, so there's, so Ptolemy, Ptolemy, the, the Greek astronomer who, who's in, in Alexandria, he gives, he, he's, he sort of gives us the, the foundation for modern astronomy. And in Ptolemaic astronomy, the constellations overlap. And it wasn't until modern times that we separated them into their own pieces of the night sky. Well, in this Paleolithic image, these animals all overlap. And it's almost as if the it, it almost as if the sky hasn't expanded yet. And what's asked so all these they, this these this artist could have made every one of those these animals smaller and as constellations are in the night sky, but instead the artists overlap them for different reasons. And one reason is that the combination of for example, if you take the, you take this, there's there's a man, there's a man and you overlap him with the the dolphin, you, be, you have a merman merman which becomes um, Aquarius. Um, if you take another man, you overlap with the horse, you have the centaur which becomes Sagittarius. So the artist was, um, but they're all on top of each other, and I didn't realize until after I wrote wrote the wrote the book was that it's because the sky in the mind of the artist hadn't expanded yet. The so-called Big Bang that we have today, um, in, in his mind, hadn't happened yet. And the man that's holding the egg, he's telling the story of the singularity of the cosmic egg. Okay. And I didn't realize that when I was writing the book. Because um, there's so, there just like you, there's so many things that came at me. And, um, you know, I had to sort things out. All right, I'm a little confused about something real quick, Bernie. Sure. Um, when you say that the man purposely overlapped the... Mm. Um, and, and, of course, we're inherently being sexist here because we're assuming a man. How dare us? Uh, sure. Well, it's, well they're, 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 the shaman and the apprentice characters are in this image are both men. Yes. Okay. And, and also, I should clarify that with... With I was just kidding, and I, I literally don't care if you call them men. And, and anyone who does that's listening out there, I hate you. Um, but anyway, that's besides the point. And and the fact that Bernie didn't laugh makes me think that he doesn't hate you. Uh, so he's very compassionate, unlike me. So we take this, um, we take this, these constellations, and and they're purposely being overlapped, right? Mm-hmm. And are you saying this is what's confusing me? Are you saying that the space had not evolved? yet to be expanded when this man was alive? Or are you saying that he was purposely squishing them together because he had already come to an understanding of the fact that at one time things were at a singularity? In his myth, because this is a myth, this okay. whole panel is a myth, the cosmic egg hadn't opened up yet. Okay, th that All is good. All the constellations were stuck into that egg. Okay, that's good clarification. Because what I thought you were trying to say, and, and I'm, I'm glad we clarified in case anyone else was thinking this, is that 40,000 years ago, the universe had not yet expanded enough for this man. Oh, no, no, no. It gets, oh, so, 
so no, it's not that. No, no. But what he no, it's it's, it's he's telling his story of the cosmic the, the the cosmic egg and the cosmic the man is holding this egg in his right hand. It's pretty obvious. And for a long time, I figured that's it's. I try to figure out what egg it was. And then ultimately, when I found the the I identified the great auk, which was the biggest bird in that region at the time, which was mm-hmm. like the biggest egg, it became that became the bird that laid the cosmic egg. Um, and the, the the cosmic the, bird, the great auk would have laid its egg in May Ju- May early June time period, and all the other animals on this panel that I can't identify their life history or what time what time in their life it is, it goes to late May to late May into June. And the night sky, I used Starry Night Pro 7, went back in time. And this is, in fact, a pre-dawn scene 34,000 years ago in the night sky in that time. And um, in, 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 um, in late May, going into June. So he's, his, in his myth, the, the great auk lays the cosmic egg. The cosmic egg explodes. And at that time, the the cosmos is reborn. So every year, there's a cycle of a rejuvenation, of a renewal that the cosmos becomes um, from that singularity um, happens again. So every year, the universe is recreated. So there was no, you know, in modern times, our, our psychology is that there had to be a beginning and there has to be an end. And we look as what's hypothetically, I mean, this, the Big Bang is the beginning, right? And you could say, well, there was, you know, Brian Keaton's work, there was something before the Big Bang, and he's studying that. Yeah. Um, but in the mind of these Paleolithic artists, they their beginning was when the when the great auk egg hatched, the biggest egg that they had, and that great auk egg was in the night sky because all these animals that they saw on the land are also projected in the night sky. All these con- the constellations. And that was the expansion, that was the explosion, and that was what we would now call the Big Bang, except it happened every year. Okay, I, I also want to, to ask you something else, it, maybe is see if you noticed this while you were sort of trying to chart the sky based off of this painting, or uh, the cave art, I mean. You said you use Starry Night 7, and for the people who don't know, Starry Night is like a, a planetarium software. I actually have a ton of experience with it because I worked in a planetarium for several years. Uh, but Starry Night 7 allows you to go forward in time, go backward in time, change the time of the day. You know, you essentially have control over the universe in that sense. And you get to see how things looked before, get to see how things look now. What I'm unsure of is if this program takes into account very accurately the relative motion of the stars. Because the constellations don't stay the same over time. Exactly. And I can see – oh, in fact, you are 100% correct on that. And so – I hope someone from NASA or um, you know Jet Propulsion Laboratories listen to this thing. You can they got it right because we can actually we can look at the characters of these um, constellations and where they are and we can see that they are in fact in the right place. And so I said that we had this Orion character and then we have the the dolphin. Well, in the Paleolithic myth, the dolphin lifts the Orion character just above the surf. And so he's telling us that the Orion character is – you see him just on the horizon. Well, around 34,000 years ago, the, Orion, the highest point of, of Orion was just above the horizon. 
So which ties us into that procession of the equinox, that the, the wobble of the Earth that you see stars on, that they 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 go higher and lower below the horizon. We could actually test Starry Night Pro Seven, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory math with this panel. Could never be done before. So they were run, they were working on it was a it's a mathematical program, and there's a lot of assumptions that are made, and they got a lot of them right because yeah. we can see. We can tie in the, the dating of this cave pattern with those constellations that it is, in fact, the same as Star and I Pro 7. Okay, great. And, and I, I think we should maybe spend a, a minute or two talking about the changing of the constellations. For people who aren't familiar with that, they might think that the constellations sort of stay the same in the night sky. Sure. But, but, but what is a constellation, Bernie? Sure. So, what is a, con- so a constellation is an image that we project from our mind into the night sky. Right. So it's entirely in our imagination. Yes. When and we, s- we overlay that over some some point sources that we see that are stars. Exactly. Right? So we might look in the sky and we say, oh, look, there's a man. You know, mm-hmm. just like we would look at a cloud and say there's an elephant or something, right? And so sure. Orion, I, my brain doesn't work well with constellations, actually. It's, it's very interesting. I, although I worked in a planetarium for several years, I always did shows where I would use, you know, more high-tech computer graphics to show cool things like black holes, neutron stars, large explosions, crazy space weather, because I didn't like talking about constellations much because my brain doesn't calculate them well. I don't see them well. I don't know what it is about the specific... I'm going to give the example. I'm going to explain real quickly why you're not seeing them. Okay. It's because... Well, you don't see most of them. You see Orion, of course. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see Ursa Major. The reason that you don't see them as the animals that they were depicted is that the stars and the constellations that they're created or they're projected as 34,000 years ago, a lot of those stars have shifted. Mm-hmm. And so the image, let's say, of the lion that they identified 34,000 years ago in the night sky, the stars have moved around a bit since then. And so you can't see that same lion. Right. You're looking for You're looking for an image in the night sky that is no longer there. Correct. And so... I should buy that's Nobel Prize material. I can tell you right now. And, uh, <laughs> it solves why why most people can't see constellations besides Ursa Major and Orion. Yes, and and both Orion and Ursa Major will eventually also deform. And the reason they deform is because again, we're just looking at point sources in the night sky, right? We're just looking at stars. Well, guess what? All of those stars aren't traveling together in a, in a giant clump. They're traveling at different speeds, different radius from the center of our galaxy. And because of that, they don't. They have relative motion. They have a motion between them that is not the same. Think about two cars on a highway, right? And, and I'm not talking to you, Bernie. I'm sure you know this, but for the listeners, think about two cars on a highway if you're viewing it from an airplane. If those cars are traveling at the same speed, it will appear to you as if they're sticking side by side. Mm-hmm. But if they're not traveling at the same speed, if one's going 60 and one's going 80, they will separate very clearly. And if you wait longer and longer, they will separate further and further. And that's the idea behind constellations sort of shifting their shape, sure. uh, is that, you know, over the course of 50,000 years, even though these stars are only differentiating by a couple kilometers per second, maybe in some cases, that difference amplifies over the course of 40,000, 50,000 years. And all of a sudden we get some constellation that looks nothing like a lion, nothing like a, I don't know, a eel or something. Exactly. That's exactly what what happened. Now, the the unique constellations that haven't actually the one that hasn't changed very much is Orion. 
because right. Orion is so far from the Earth from our perspective that it, it hasn't it hasn't it really hasn't changed it hasn't changed in Star Pro Seven or in the night skies the relative stars and I believe that Orion is the most important constellation I believe that hundreds of thousands of years ago if not even earlier in time there was some descendant of a of a of a chip um, some the missing link between us and the chip and this this um this ape could stand and there was one night that 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 ape looked up in the night sky and saw orion and raised its right hand and said i'm one with the stars and that and and when the chip made that 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 ape made that connection they became one and then for the first time they can now tell them they can tell time throughout the year so you can tell you can use a lunar cycle you can follow the fish in the game and so all this sort of stuff but it's really hard to follow the year with the sun unless you have a sundial and i don't believe chimp that the center of the chimp had a sundial but he could have or he or she could have used the orion as that first night marker and when orion disappeared below the horizon during the day orion died and when throughout the seasons you know, hypothetically, in the winter time, if Orion rises, that was the time to start getting the the blankets ready, or the the furs, or whatever, with the bedding in the in the cave. Um, but it told them in the night sky, and and when Orion when Orion approaches the mountain, he's climbing it like the hero. When Orion goes behind the mountain, when he's low on the horizon, he's entered the mountain, he's entered the cave, and when he when he surfaces from the mountain, he's reborn. And Orion in Greek. And the Greek, the Greek wording is the man of the mountain. Uh, and so Orion is the most important one in my mind. And number two is Ursa Major. Because around the world, most people identify Ursa Major as a legged animal. It has that that look. Um, looks, like and a, it's pro- looks like a pot of water to me. Well, if it looks like a pot of water. If you look yes. at the Big Dipper and not the if actual. If you look at the Big yeah. Dipper, yeah. But it also... It, it, but also looks legged for if you didn't have a pot, which people didn't have 34,000 years ago, um, it was a legged animal. That's very true. Go, That's very true. I didn't think about that. In, in Alaska, in, in the greater Alaska region, they look at the um, Ursa Major as a reindeer. Um, and in the, in the Greek tradition, it's a, a bear. And in the, um, the Great Lakes into the, the northeast where you are, the tradition is also as a she bear. Um, in this image, it's also a she bear as well, and I have a she bear in another cave as well. And we're fun- we fundamentally tell the story of the, the the animal, typically a she bear, as in Ursa Major, throughout the world wherever there have been bears. And that's a common mythological origin. There's there's two, there are two other common mythological or, um, um, are the Ursa Major. I'm sorry, Orion as, as a man, and Cirrus as a dog. Now, Cirrus doesn't look like a dog. It's a singular bright star. And when people make images out of Canis Major, they use whatever dog is in the, you know, roaming around their floor. Right. And and so that you can't actually find a dog. In, 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 you, you will find your own dog in Canis Major. Okay. And hopefully but that dog's the, not a pug. I'm just exactly. putting that out there. Yeah. So, But around the world, people are using Cirrus as a dog. Right. Which is... And the other the other one they use is uh, which is which is telling us there's a common root to this, a common root to astronomy, 
and, and the myth. The other one is Pleiades as a group of people, typically women who are being chased by Orion. And that's told throughout North America and Siberia um, and, and up in Australia and other places. Australia, think about that one, okay? And Orion's chasing the women, the women in, um, in Pleiades. So there's a common mythological source to, to astronomy, and I believe it's even deeper than this El Castillo, this this image 34,000 years ago. I believe it's hundreds of thousands of years ago. I also think that Orion is the most important constellation, at least for the Northern Hemisphere, because in terms of just astronomy education, mm-hmm. it is one of the few that, like you said, people can actually physically see, and almost anyone can see it. I, right. I've given planetarium shows to, you know, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, and they can go outside and they can point out Orion in the night sky. And the other reason it's so important, actually, is because even with the adv- invention of, of electricity, even with the invention of light, even with the invention of large cities, you can still generally step outside and see Orion. You might not be able to see anything else, but you can right. see Orion rising in, in the night sky. Orion is the, is the first hero in the night sky. He's the hero on the journey. Um, and I believe that he was that the first character in the night sky that that great descendant of ours um, identified and found himself or herself in the cosmos. That was the I believe that was the first connection outside of the the the, the daily rhythms of the sun and the lunar cycle. Okay, so now we we've we've developed our your argument right. We've developed. I don't even know if I would call it an argument, more an analysis. We've developed your analysis of the the um, El Castillo cave paintings. We've sort of set the stage for Orion being the most important. Now tell us the the meaning of the name before Orion. What is it that you think Orion does? You've already mentioned it a little bit, but, but really a long-form way. What do you think it is that Orion does that makes it so supremely important for studying the past of humanity? So Orion is the is the Greek word. And so the title of the book before Orion is saying that there were constellations and there was knowledge and there were highly advanced people um, before the Greeks. Because we typically start um, knowledge and history with the Greeks. And, you know, maybe we, we, we drop in a little bit a little further, the Sumerians and the Egyptians and so on. But we really start with Western civilization. We start with the Greeks. Right. And so – this is saying that not only did the Greeks not start it, but the Greeks borrowed from it. And so Ptolemy, you, I can go through about, probably pick about 20 of Ptolemy's constellations that exa- are in the same animals in the same places in the night sky as they were 34,000 years ago, as depicted on this image. So Ptolemy, Ptolemy's source, or his source's source, had been in this or other caves that the Greeks were borrowing from prehistoric man. And there, there was this, there's always been this, uh, actually not always, but for a long time it's been a question. Uh, there was, um, uh, I think it was the University of Houston, his name is Dr. Newton. And he argued that Ptolemy could not have come up with all those constellations because they were not available to his night sky. He had to be some, somewhere further south for, for, um, to, have, to develop that astronomical record. Well, I would say that um, Newton was half correct, that Ptolemy couldn't have done it. But it's it's not because to be further south, but he had to be in a, a different time period. He had to be in a different pr- procession of the equinox, a different wobble of the earth 
when all those stars that he depicts could have been seen from roughly that location because it's not that far distant um, um, on the longitude from the El Castillo cave. It's, it's not that far distance. Um, and so he didn't, or the other caves in, in, in the Southern Iberian Peninsula. So Ptolemy, he, he did, it, uh, Newton says that it was one of the greatest thefts in history and that Ptolemy was a fraud. Um, and he, he certainly didn't cite his source, that's for sure. But there was, uh, the Greeks are, were rewriting a history from the past. Right. I, I should mention, maybe Ptolemy did cite his source because we lost a lot of the writings of the ancient Greeks. Uh, I think what was the, there was an incredibly large library in Alexandria, I believe it was. Sure. Yeah, and his library, his library. Yes, yeah. and that is has has since ceased to exist. So correct. Um, it, it actually would be very interesting to to see if he did have long form writings on his development of the constellations, but unfortunately, that's that's not in existence. Yeah, I believe that Ptolemy, the Greeks, and I believe the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Phoenicians had been to these caves as well, because there's distinct characters in their cultures that come out of, that are in these caves. Um, yeah, I, I have another interesting point along these lines. Sure. Do you think that they also knew of other sites where they could see these sorts of cave paintings that yeah, we don't did, yeah. that we don't know of today? Um, that actually, that's a really good question, and I the answer is that I see characters in in ancient societies that look a heck of a lot like like the ones I see in the caves, but there's some differences. Um, I even believe that Picasso, so Picasso lifted images from some of these caves that he never gave credit for. Okay? I mean, um, but Picasso has some that are slight devi- deviations that I believe Picasso has had also seen some cave images that we haven't identified. Um, either caves or images within caves that we had identified. This Picasso, he took the exact same image, images. And modern art was sprung from Picasso in 1907 in his painting Les Dames d'Avignon, The Women of the Street. And he takes two masks or images of these horse masks from the Altamira Cave in Spain, not too, actually near to El Castillo Cave. And he puts, puts them on the faces of two women in Les Dames d'Avignon. And it was shocking at the time. And people said, well, you know, Picasso's going to hang himself himself behind this great canvas. But it ultimately became Cubism and modern art as we now know it. But And Picasso never told his source. I can, I can go through a lot of Picasso images. I can draw out, you know, where he what where he specifically got them, found these characters. But there's some I can't figure out, which which leads me to because Picasso was so exact that either there are images in caves that we currently don't see or that Picasso had been to caves that we hadn't been to. And I believe that the the, um, the Greeks and the Romans, the Phoenicians and others had been to caves that um, we currently have awareness of. And we we have now have images through my book, The Interpretation, but they had been to other ones as well. Um, but they this this gallery of discs, it, it pretty much explains the the Greek story. Um, as as Ptolemy had put it, good okay. question though. Okay, now I thought about that. Yeah, it, it's it, that's actually what interests me most about archaeology. Once I found out that a lot of archaeologists like spend their whole life 
digging up pots and 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 broken pottery and a, and a coin every now and again i kind of got dissuade a little bit from getting into it mm. but the the act of like what really gets me is egypt i am fascinated with egypt and how you have these incredibly big pyramids that were built you know seemingly with tools that that shouldn't or couldn't have existed at the time mm-hmm. using materials that were you know so far away from the actual pyramid site themselves and they had to transport these things and somehow lift them right and and i'm sure that that some of the theories of, of how they did that are, are valid. But the point is there's probably a lot of things out there in the world, in Africa, in parts of Europe, in parts of Egypt, you know, in parts of Asia that have never been discovered. They haven't been looked at. They haven't been looked for. And there's probably very interesting sites that, that we simply don't know of. Yeah, that, that's right. And there's actually, there's an important image that we you're going to put up on the webpage, and it had to do with the the embedded image test. And it's really important on, on your site. And what it does is it's a test in psychology that people have, some people have the ability to see in, embedded images. And so if, if you have a, um, on this particular gallery of discs, we have images within images and images overlapping each other and so on. There's a segment of the population that cannot see it unless you actually outline it. Okay. And they're called, they have um, global processing bias. And I think that's me. I'll just put that, that out you're, there. You're, you're most likely global processing bias. Yeah. Whereas, um, according to a psychologist, they would say that I have local processing bias and I could, I do very well at these embedded image tests, but actually how it works with me, is more like a microscope that I do the global and local. I can go in and out. That's how my brain's wired. And I believe these Pelothic artists, their brains are wired similar to mine. That's why I can see what they did. Okay. But um, so if if people made Im- made art or images or kept knowledge in these embedded Im- image test type of um, um, designs, then, you know, 80% of the world can't see them. So if, if an archaeologist who is absolutely brilliant in everything they do has global processing bias and they're looking at something that it's an embedded image, local processing bias, they're not going to see it. Um, and that's really important. And this just isn't about archaeology. This is about neurodiversity, is that these, these Paleolithic artists recognize that our brains are wired differently and that people have different talents. And if you test, if you, if you want to test people to make cave art and interpret the images and follow these myths and chart the night sky and pass on that knowledge, somebody who, who can shift back and forth between global and local processing bias is probably a pretty good bet. If you want someone who's counting peanuts, um, it's not, it's not the same person. Right. Um, is it, is it, oh, feel free to finish on. your thought. Go on. Yeah. Okay. Is it possible though, also that you're not seeing ancient people's, sort of embedding images. But what you're seeing is different people at different times sort of painting over the old person's work. So th- that happens in some cave- sub-images because you can actually date the difference- differences. I believe that for this gallery of discs and the other one I do the gourmet etching, I believe it was one, they were each individual artists. Okay. Um, and, the reason, and the reason is that they did it. It's the same. It's that pre-dawn night sky 34,000 years ago. Um, in in early June, um, and and there's also some techniques that 
in this, how the how this will further into the story is that there is an actual story of a hero on his journey, and in this story, the characters become apparent as your mind goes into the images and your mind expands and it develops. So images that you so I outline them in the book and people can see them all at one shot. But if if you took the journey as I did it, you won't see them all at the same time, but you'll see one will be a positive and another will be a negative of that positive. And so the the second image won't become apparent until after you see the first one. And I believe that the artist actually created this to unfold the story just as you would in a book. Um, so th th this artist is clever. And we, if you think of, think of who are the top three geniuses that you think of all time? Top three. Top three geniuses I think of all time. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I'll go with Albert Einstein is mm -hmm. the obvious number one. Mm -hmm. Isaac Newton is probably a number two. And maybe number three is a toss-up. But let's say for the modern world, Nikola Tesla. Okay, so go back, go back five hundred years. Who would be the top three? Five hundred years, the top three. Well, five hundred years, we would eliminate two of those people. Well, let's see. Mm -hmm. Yep. So Isaac Newton would be the the clear number one, and I don't know by modern standards. I don't know if I could call anyone else Da Vinci a genius. Yeah, yeah, yes. He's he's someone that. He's someone who's incredibly interesting because he seems to do some really magical revolutionary things in terms of his thought. But in terms of practice, there's not tons of things. I mean, I'm thinking in terms of tech is what I'm thinking. Sure, no, in of, terms course, of, tech, sure of course. Yeah. But I know that Da Vinci like has these paintings that look like flying aircraft and Mm -hmm. and maybe not paintings isn't the right word maybe drawings is, is a better word but he's um, also this renaissance man who could do both the math and the sciences and the art yes um, and so he 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 was wired for both sides of the brain mm -hmm. and so what's so as we go back in time we come up with these these extraordinary geniuses well hundreds of years well if we can come up with these these extraordinary geniuses in hundreds of years in 3,000 years, why can't there have been even more extraordinary geniuses than Newton and Da Vinci? And perhaps the people who made, who, the, the person who came up with the design of the Great Pyramids, yeah. as you brought up earlier, and others, some of these archaeological wonders. So if you go back 3,000 years, why couldn't 10,000 years have been a greater genius than any of those? Oh, if you go I, back 40,000 years, why couldn't you have had geniuses beyond Newton, Einstein, Da Vinci and whoever came up with the idea of how to stack those stones to the pyramid. Here's what I think happens as someone who is completely outside of evolutionary biology and maybe an evolutionary sure. biologist would call me stupid. But mm -hmm. what happens is you have people like this mm -hmm. that are revolutionary geniuses that come up with ways to build the great pyramids, etc. Sure. And those people do two things. Number one, they make the entire population smarter. Mm -hmm. Okay, They enlighten them. And number two they're more likely to breed, especially in prehistoric society where you have, you know, someone who's a genius, probably not going to be in a monogamous relationship. They're probably going to be, you know, making children with the entire tribe. And, mm -hmm. and, and maybe I'm wrong, but the point is... You're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, what you have is you have knowledge, 
which propagates to, 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 to people because they see, those people see that the way to, to spread their genome is to be smart, is to be mm -hmm. revolutionary. Mm -hmm. So over time, you have knowledge that compounds and compounds and compounds. And so when we look back on that today, it's hard for us to say, oh, this person figured out a new way to hunt. Therefore, you know, he must have been a genius. It, our brain doesn't make that connection because, because, you know, food is so easy for us to get. So my point is that over the generations, knowledge increases so much that we forget how revolutionary an idea was when it was found. We do that in physics with Newton. Everyone mm -hmm. calls Newton a genius, but the, the shit that Newton was doing, we learn in first year physics. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so we forget, I think, a little bit that genius did exist. I don't, I don't know if anyone denies it existed. I think that we just forget how revolutionary an idea was because to us it seems so primitive. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I, I would say two things. One is that the, this Gower of Dis was actually a test to test for that genius. So if you couldn't, if you couldn't see the images and if you couldn't see, pick up the story and you couldn't see the night sky, you are worthless as a shaman to continue the line. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. That's yeah. It's, it's okay. which goes back to yours. No uh, child left behind. Yeah. Get that out of here. Yeah. And so this was the actual test, and I believe that they I, they were they were certainly breeding dogs at the time, and they understood this this concept. The second part of it is, I believe that this image with all the constellations in the night sky that that they overlap and that most people can't see it, and they 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 have the embedded images, and they they. They spark our interest with the red discs, and you know we don't see the elephant in the room, and um, and the genius of the actual art technique itself is far beyond any other genius that you mentioned. That that country, there's there's nobody, um, there's nobody in modern visual arts, there's no in, in, in ancient sculpture. That you know, this is Michael, this is Michelangelo's David times a thousand. Um, Michelangelo, if he didn't get David, if he didn't get David right. He could have taken a new piece of marble, right? Um, and he might have even had some demos before he even worked on on Charles Chisel at David. But on this cave wall, you couldn't do that. You had to get the night sky right on the first mark. Um, I see. And so, and you had not just the night sky right, but you had to get all these overlapping characters in the night sky at, on the from the first chisel. You had to be looking constellations ahead when you were working on one. You had to have all these stories um, developed to to in this in this great storyboard. Um, okay. It's, it's unfathomable, the genius that went into this. Yes, and I'll tell you what comes to my mind, okay? Because I, I, based off of what we just got done talking about, how this genius tends to be evolutionary, mm -hmm. at least in my mind, what that tells me and just, you know, throwing an idea against the wall, whether or not it sticks. What that tells me is that these people 40,000 years ago were not the first generation of people 40,000 years ago. They right. were a very, very well-evolved set of people who had yeah. already weeded out the dumb people, if you will. You know, the person, when the bushes rustle and there's a lion ready to attack you, the person who doesn't run away is getting weeded out in that society. The dumb mm -hmm. people are getting weeded out. And so what you have is you have, if what you're saying is correct, if you have really s smart individuals who knowingly created this very unique symbolism on a cave wall, and it wasn't just someone messing up a painting, 
if mm-hmm. if what you have is is actually genius, then probably what you have is is thousands of years of human evolution before that. Oh, absolutely, it's many thousands. Um, and it's extraordinary genius. And in the prologue of the book, I talk about Bobby Fisher. Bobby Fisher was called the, the the Brooklyn Wolf, and there was something in Fisher's mind. His father was a was a his presumed father was an advanced mathematician. And Bobby Fischer had this ability to do chess in his head. He would walk down the street and recreate games, famous games. Um, and he, his adversary was himself, his own, but also the Russian machine. And at that time, we were in a Cold War with Russia. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe we're still in a Cold War. I don't know. We're in a hot war. I'm not sure what the war with Russia is. Social but, media but, war, I think, is, social the, media is, war, is the proper yeah. thing. But you have to remember, so the Russian machine was taking kids out of school and making – Taking prodigies and develop them to be the the great um, chess minds because they wanted to show that they were the smartest people in the world and that the Russian institution um, bred that in the same way they did athletes. And so he um, so Spatsky was the world champion at that time. And Bobby Fischer beat Spatsky, Spatsky, who walks away from the table, and uh, because he he just he couldn't beat Fischer. And well, Fischer. So we have to think that Spassky was a genius, okay? Mm-hmm. That he was, he had succeeded in this high, entire Russian machine, and he had beat every other chess player in the world. And this kid comes comes along out of Brooklyn, with doesn't have any of the training, any of the the resources that Spassky had, but he had that extraordinary, extraordinary genius to beat him. And so that genius is not something that comes out of an institution. Institutions um, carry on the traditions of genius. Um, genius is not something that comes along every year in, or every lifetime, even hundreds of lifetimes. This extraordinary genius that we find in the Newtons and we find whoever built the pyramids. And even in Einstein who, who thought in numbers and pictures at the same time. Well, we have this genius 34, at least 34,000 years ago. And it, as you say, it didn't start then. And they had a test to do this. So we have to think of, in our own workplaces, we have to think about neurodiversity and that the we, we test people, standardized tests to fit a mold. Well, maybe you need to have an autistic person in the room if you want to do creative, be creative differently, yeah. to, to search different spaces. And I, so I'm dyslexic, okay? And I, I put that one out there. So I'm a picture thinker. And that gets partly how I have the ability to do this, this microscope um, in and out the global local processing. And so I see the world in pictures. I don't see the world in in um, in, in text. Um, and so we have we have to have um, diversity, this neurodiversity in our workplaces and our sciences to not only to move forward, but to under, to even understand what people knew before us in the past. I see. And so and I'm not dyslexic, but I am just a tiny bit dumb. So that's what I suffer from. And, no, it's there's no sense of this dumb. And yeah. and I I I I tend to agree with you that. Are you saying that genius is sort of sudden onset? Are you saying that genius well, isn't taught that it, it is something that some certain subset of the population is born with? Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. So the the Bobby Fisher example shows that. It's rare. Yes. Um, it's can't. It's definitely not taught, and it can't be groomed. Um, so, 
but I believe these Paleolithic artists were actually testing for the ability to, the person had to pass this test to be able to pass on the knowledge and the pass the test, you had to see the embedded images. Yes. You that, had to see the night sky. There's something important here hidden in, in, in the context of what we're talking about. Uh, I think that genius is, is certainly not something you evolve into during one's lifetime, right? You're, you're born with the genius, but here's the important thing that, that I want to stress because I think a lot of young kids hear this, that you're born, you're born a genius. I certainly did. And you almost get down on yourself. You're like, well, I'm not that, you know, I know I'm not the genius and, and they get a little, you know, sad, like, well, I'm not going to be able to achieve anything great because I'm not the genius. But I want to say this sort of off topic. I think that this is sort of how my beliefs have evolved, that every single human being is born a genius, just yes. not the same genius. Yes. You talked earlier about neurodiversity. Every mm -hmm. single person is born with the innate ability to do something better than probably anyone else. The problem is, is number one, finding out what that one thing is. Yes. Right? It's very possible that someone was born with, with a, a better chess player than Bobby Fischer at the same time that Bobby Fischer was alive. Mm -hmm. But that person never found themselves playing chess. So they yes. never knew. They never stumbled into it. Right? We have tons of people who, are, who could probably be great NFL players, great NBA players, great mixed martial arts fighters, plenty of people who could be great astrophysicists, you know, great welders, what, what have you. They have the mind for it, but they don't find themselves in that path. Right. Yes. So it's important that you, not you, but, but human beings in general, that you, you try to identify what it is that you're incredibly good at and also what it is that you like. And hopefully those two things mesh. And what I think is that when you see those two things mesh, what you're incredibly good at and what you like, that's when genius appears. That's when you can see people being geniuses. The only reason Albert Einstein was, was so goddamn productive is because, number one, he loved what he did. And number two, he was really goddamn good at it. If he was really good at physics and he didn't like doing physics, we wouldn't have had Albert Einstein. We mm -hmm. would have had someone else, right? And so you might be right. You might be that these, these people were looking for this person, the subset of the population, who is really good at depicting the types of art that they created. And Bernie, do you think that, that you are that person? Do you think you were born with the mind to, to look at this and to really be able to depict it? And of course, I'm not asking you to call Without yourself. Without any question, yeah. Yeah. So, so I was 80% born with the mind to see this because I've always been doing this. Um, and I was – and about 20% of it, I was also rewired during the process. Yes, and that happens. That's important. Yeah, I was, was definitely rewired. Um and, and, it's, and that was an extraordinary experience because I actually see the world differently. And I believe that's also part of this experience is its own spiritual revelation in a non-ghost, you know, non-divine sense. Um, but hallelujah on your, your revelation of tying this together that there's genius in everybody and, and the neurodiversity environments can, can capture everybody's genius. And, uh, and that there are extraordinary geniuses as a subset of the population that can do these amazing things, such as to create this, this image. Um, and so I, hash, I hashtag before Ryan and neurodiversity and the things I do because people don't really get it that we're testing people to be in boxes. 
but there are there are there are triangles and there are circles and there are so many other forms that we're not testing for that we're testing people to to we're we're testing the, the the triangles and the circles people out of being in the box. Yeah, I think that standardized tests are completely and utterly useless and should be abolished. In fact, I encourage any parents listening to this that if you live in a state where standardized testing is required but it does not affect your child in any way, don't even send them to school that week. Go on vacation. Take them to Vermont. I don't care. Take them somewhere. It is so completely useless and a waste of time to make kids take standardized tests. Mm-hmm. Both in elementary school, in high school, in college, it's all useless. It doesn't affect anything. It doesn't matter. In fact, all it does, I think, is break people's confidence down. It makes them think they're not good enough because they're not scoring high enough. When in fact, there's something out there that they could be really goddamn good at. But they don't think that anymore because, you know, oh, we rank you proficient in humankind. You know, oh, well, we're going to put you below average. You need to work on your composition. It's so stupid. It is mm-hmm. so. It's such a weird way. No child left behind. I think is one of the dumbest, stupidest things to ever exist. The yeah. idea that we should try to hurdle all these human beings together and send them along the same path, the same linear path. What we should be doing is, as soon as a kid hits seventh grade, we should be encouraging them to explore different paths. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't all be sitting in the same classrooms. Yes, they should learn the fundamentals. Maybe learn algebra, learn how to speak properly, learn how to write properly. But once that's that only takes a year. Don't mm-hmm. kid yourself. Don't pretend that you have to sit in school for 45,000 years in order to learn those skills. That takes one year. And if teachers weren't so, you know, busy trying to train these kids to take standardized tests, maybe that the system could see that that doesn't take very long. And then allow them to explore what it is that they want to explore. What you do, Bernie, I love because you're not employed by you're not employed by a university, are you? I'm not at all. No. I'm unaffiliated, independent. Yes, that is incredibly important, and I think that more people and that is, I'll say that that might be possible with the type of work you do. I think mm-hmm. in science it is. I, I won't say impossible. It's certainly possible, and I, and I want to do it. I, I that is the long term goal is to study the things I want to study, but I don't think I want to exist in the university system. At first... So you can exist in the university system, but you have to, and you can continue down the tenure path, but you have to take those risks. You have to say, you know, I don't agree with the, these this current theory. I'm going to develop a new theory. And in, in um, astrophysics, it's pretty, you know... There's lots of ways you can go. Astronomer said to me a, a year or so ago that, you know, we astronomers um, will easily accept your stuff because we believe in all kinds of crazy things. <laughs> okay? yeah. it's, it's, so you're in a field where people, let's face it, they make up a lot of stuff, okay? And sure. um, so, and, and that's okay because whereas in um, archaeology and medicine and, and, and other fields, people have, they don't have the, the ability to make up basically complete theories that is people make up in um, astrophysics. Yes, um, but that's what's so important about f- physics in general is it is meant to be a very open community where you're allowed to throw whatever idea you want into the pot, into the boiling pot of physics. You can mm-hmm. toss any idea you want in there and we'll sort it out with hard data, with observation. We'll figure mm-hmm. out what's right and we'll figure out what's wrong. Sure. 
And so in in that regard, I, and when I say I don't want to be part of the university system, what I mean is that I I want to study astrophysics for my career, right? But mm-hmm. the sort of red tape that goes along with being affiliated with someone is just excruciatingly unnecessary. Well, you know, you had Brian Keating on your last episode. He basically bucked the system by saying the heck with the Nobel Prize. And he, he will never win a Nobel Prize and, or anything like that because he has snubbed the system to say the whole thing's buck. Exactly. Um, and that it's it's and, biased and so on. So you can you can you can be a maverick in the system. In his case, you know, he was his book was reviewed Science Nature just about everywhere else. Um, so you can do it. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very good book. I'm, I'm sure you've read it. Um, mm-hmm. I I read it as well. And it's, it it truly is. And I talked with him about a lot of this stuff. This sort of standardized testing, useless trying to fit everyone into a box ideas. And I really do think that. A lot of times it prevents real change from happening. For example, Bernie Taylor might not have there. What I'm saying is there might be a lot of Bernie Taylors out there. There might be a lot of people who want to analyze something who, who don't want to spend 18,000 years in school, right? Who don't want to jump through stupid hoops that shouldn't even be there to begin with, but that have a passion and they want to study something. And those people should pursue that. But because we're so convinced that you have to go to college, that you have to get good grades on your GRE, that you have to have a great GPA. We prevent a lot of great minds from actually pursuing the things that they should be pursuing. Absolutely. So here's, I, I show this gallery image to a few people before seeing, before going with finishing the book and people had no idea what I was working on. And some people could see apps, you know, they, they right away, they went to the red discs. Mm-hmm. And some people saw the elephant pretty quick. There was two people who saw everything that I see today at one time. Yeah, and and I'll I'll speak to that real quick. When I when I looked at the images, which for the listeners, you can check those out on my website, and there will be links in the description to to get there very easily. My mind went to the red discs, mm-hmm. and only to the red discs. It just went there. <laughs> it like it just. It, and that's the test. That's the test. And so but what what you learned – so here's what you learned, and I believe this was – I don't believe that the apprentice who walked into this thing just started seeing elephants and, and uh, lions and all this sort of stuff. I believe that the, the apprentice looked at those red discs and didn't know where to go with it. Just started counting the red discs, gave the ants – you know, said, oh, I just see red discs. How many of them? And sort of counted the peanuts. And then the, 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 um, the shaman said to the apprentice, well, what else do you see? And and then started probably counted the red discs over again. And they said, well, what else do you see? And I believe that this apprentice went into ultimate despair. And, you know, blurry eyes, just red eyes, just as we see the apprentice with the red eyes in this image. And then he broke down and he started to look within himself with those those starry eyes and, and the tears and started to see that there were other images embedded in the panel. And I believe that this this it's not a test of someone who can just walk and f- stand in front of it and see the whole thing at once. But the person, this is a test to tell if someone can has the ability to put the ego on the shelf, to think, to step out of the box, to ways of thinking they never could have even thought of before. Deep, you know, dive deep inside themselves and say, you know, there are things, there are possibilities that 
are not in my background, that I've not been taught, that nobody else in at my time knows that those possibilities can exist. And this Gallery of Discs is the example. Millions and millions of people in the popular science and scientific um, science in the journals had seen this panel when it came out in the media. The, the image, the same image that you're looking at today, and nobody went to print with anything besides the red discs. Yeah. And so I, there's we have there's no, multiple perspectives, things that we, we couldn't imagine. We have to open our minds. I I want to mention that because I imagine along the way of writing this book and of doing this work, you, you had a lot of people. I tend to be incredibly open-minded in the sense that I will hear arguments and I won't accept them, but I won't shy away from them. I won't say that they're wrong because I, I like there to be an open flow of information. It, I'll give an analogy real quick. The recent banning of Alex Jones from social media. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about this. Yes. Okay, for people who don't know, Alex Jones is this conspiracy theorist, almost extremist, or or yes, extremist type of individual who who posts offensive things, conspiracy theory type things online. And recently, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, pretty much every social media platform banned him, wiped him clean off of the off of the platform. And I actually think that's a really bad idea. That's what I think. I think that you you shouldn't do that. I think that, yes, you're a private organization. You have the right to do it. But I think that you shouldn't do it. I think that even if he's being offensive, it's important in my world to let information flow. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, you have to let, mm -hmm. you have to let the population sort that out. Just like in physics, okay. people propose that they have found aliens every day. Every day. <laughs> but what do we do we don't say you're stupid no we let the article go to publication we look at it and we point out a flaw in the argument that's how every organized system should work we do too much telling people no we do too much telling people that they don't know what they're talking about or that they're stupid and so my question to you bernie is in the writing of this book in the in the time that you've done this work have you encountered a lot of people like that who were like you, you don't know what you're talking about. You, you know, you're silly. Specifically, what about academics? What do they think? Well, so fortunately, George Schaller, his mind is wired similar to mine. And um, so I had a um, somebody who was working with me um, fairly early, early on. And there was this one moment I thought was really funny that in another image in, in the Gorham's cave, there's this man, he has a beard and, and he's bald. And, and I asked George, you know, what do you see? And George didn't tell me what it started. He asked the question, did they shave at that time? So put this in the context. That image is about 35,000 years ago. And George is now looking at the oldest image of a homo sapien that we have. And the, the second oldest, the ones that we have in the, in the in Gower disc. And that's, these images, the oldest of homo sapiens by about 14,000 years. And he's asking the question, do they shave? And I just had to laugh because... George was seeing what I was seeing, and we, and he he, he asked this this, and the answer was uh, th there was no metal, so who knows how the heck if they shaved or anything like that. But the man is certainly bald, and uh, so early on I had that I had somebody who's helped me, um, and then I was testing people who didn't know that what the answer was, and I got to see the different personality types, and 
what people's professions were related to what they what they could see in the images. I kind of do this, you know, this not this informal analysis. Mm-hmm. Then when I released the project, well, right away people said that this was previously published in, I mean, not just the primary literature, but individual journals, but all the other journals commented on these images okay, and on and the major popular science magazines. And people would say, well, this was already res- resolved in Nature or Science or uh, Proceedings of Natural PNAS. And, um, and, but I just kept going and I just kept putting them out there. And what I found is that the more that people saw additional images, they came to real, the, the, um, the peanut gallery just shut off. Uh, and they came to realize that, oh my God, we missed this. Um, and so I don't get it anymore. And early on, I also had a, um, I had an invite to give a presentation at Oregon State University. I'm in anthropology and I gave it to her and that went on to YouTube. Um, and then that got that was spread around, you know, to to different circles that people could see it, and that there was so it came from a so-called academic source. Um, and then I gave a presentation at the University of Hawaii Institute for Astronomy uh, at, at Maui, and that was to a hardcore professional astronomer group, and they asked real questions to a non-astronomer, and I gave them real answers. And but there's there's been one one question that you haven't asked me that has been asked in every other podcast and every other presentation I've given. And the question everybody asks, it doesn't matter if you're a psychic or you're an astronomer or, or archaeologist or historian or what they you're, build, you're building ask, it up. I'm ready. Is it is it in our DNA? And that same question was asked of a recent the recent Nobel laureate, the woman who won the uh, for, for chemistry who works on DNA. Mm hmm. And they asked her if it's in the DNA, and she answered the question, "Well, we it, we can't tell if it's in the DNA now. These memories, these thoughts, these this instinct. But you know, maybe further down the road in our research, we may find that with more tools and experience." And I've given um, my version of that answer to every one of those groups and every every person that's asked that question, um, and that is it in our DNA. Because um, the other op- the other question, you know, other people will say that well, the consciousness is somehow in the cloud and download it. Consciousness is passed from mother to child, passed, you know, passed in the environment. I mean, there's all the ideas of how consciousness is passed on, or even where does consciousness exist? Um, does it exist when you know when the when the fertilization of the egg? Does the consciousness passed on from the mother? The consciousness, where does consciousness come from? It's a big question. And well, we, what we have now is we can study these questions. We can ask these questions. Thirty-four thousand. We can look back thirty-four thousand years ago because we're telling the same myths in the same way, and we're seeing the same things as we do today. Whereas prior to my work, the timeline went back to thirty-four, thirty-five hundred years ago, maybe four thousand years ago, with this, with the Epic of Gilgamesh, that that um, that hero's journey story that we dug up from the sands in the Middle East. And that we, we psychologists look back to the epic of Gilgamesh and say, well, you know, he has the same struggles and the same fears and the same, you know, emotional issues that we have today. Therefore, we haven't really changed. We haven't changed since the time of Gilgamesh. Well, we can now look back 34,000 years ago. We haven't changed in 34,000 years either. Um, and if we haven't changed in 34,000 years, we probably haven't changed in 34,000 years before that. And yeah. so it's um, it it changes the timeline of history. And it's so startling that people can't attack me on this one. They really can't challenge me other than to say it's not peer reviewed. But they're um, 
it, it, it asks the question of modern science. Are we, what's, what did we miss? And I believe the missing thing is a neurodiverse group of people studying these questions. Because I did it because I'm outside of the box that would have done well um, in an archaeological circles or even astro, astro, astronomy circles. Um, um, I'm not wired for that, but I'm wired for other things. And so what was missing in this whole equation, it's not that any one person is any smarter or dumber than the other. It's that we're not attacking these questions, the questions of humanity from a neurodiverse standpoint. We don't have an autistic person in the room. We don't have a dyslexic person in the room or whatever other other people there are in the spectrum. And that's what we're, we're missing. That's the missing link to truly understanding who we are as a species. And unless we understand where we came from, we really can't understand where we're going. That's fair, Bernie. That's 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 some some nice set of sentences you just spewed out of your mouth. I will say that it it is. We really do need to open our eyes to different ideas, to different people, right? We tend to. Here's what we tend to do. This this is actually interesting to me. We take a top university, right? Say I don't know Stanford. Who does Stanford accept into their physics degrees, <laughs> into their physics PhDs? They yeah. accept the people who did the best on the standardized physics GRE. That's what they do. So what do you do? You, you create this conglomeration of people who you have already shown are all the same. Now, I'm sure they go on and, you know, maybe one person likes tennis and someone goes home and plays video games. And, and, and they're neurodiverse in that aspect. But what you've done is you've created an environment in which ideas sort of have a boundary on how creative they can be, right? Because you can't be too creative in that environment. You're almost mm -hmm. afraid of creativity. You're afraid of posing something that sounds a little out of the box, a little unordinary, if you will. And I don't think it's a good environment. And, and I, I agree with you. I think that in order to create the best science, in order to create the best archaeology, in order to create the best anything, the best out of the human species, you have to take a conglomeration of ideas from people in all different walks of life. That's what part of this podcast is, is it's taking people, not necessarily all people who are at the top of academia, not necessarily people who are New York Times best-selling authors, etc. It's taking some of each of those people and putting them down and trying to get the human understanding of the world that we live in, the state of the universe. Maybe a more apt name for the podcast is the state of our universe, because that's what I'm trying to get at. And I think that you did a great job of sort of wrapping your ideas up, Bernie. And so with that, would you like to, to tell people where they can find you online, on social media, and what have you? Sure, I'm in the cosmos. Um, before my webpage is beforeryan.com. I use before Ryan on everything, whether it be uh, Pinterest and Facebook, Twitter, um, YouTube, and there's uh, the books out there before Ryan finding the face of the hero on, um, on email formats. I'm, I've moved away from print books. I believe that print books are going to be a thing of the past. Let's save, let's save some trees. And, 
but there's plenty of YouTube videos out there. I've gotten lots of um, interviews and presentations with lots with images and people can explore a different dimension of who we are. Um, and it's it's all out there. And I just encourage people to just go have fun with it and um, you know be well. There's some good words from a good man. We're out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Make sure to leave a rating or a review if you enjoyed it. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes.